What if in order to pull ourselves out of a tight spot, in order to pull ourselves out of a bad financial place, we started giving more to charity, not less, but more, meaning instead of doing what many people do and reducing expenses and spending less money and spending less and less and less, we say, you know what? I'm going to do the exact opposite of what everybody else is doing. And I'm just going to spend more. I was giving $500 a month to charity. I'm going to give $1,500 a month to charity. What if you could do that? That's just one of the fascinating things that we are going to learn today from our special guest, Paul Moore. This is the Way to Greatness podcast, where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness. And now your host, Ari Gunsberg. Welcome back to The Way to Greatness, where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness. Today we have as our guest, somebody who received an MBA and went to work for Ford in Detroit. Five years later, he started a staffing company with a partner, and then he sold it for close to $3 million. He then entered the real estate sector where he had a number of other successes, such as flipping over 75 properties and appearing on HGTV's House Hunters, developing a subdivision, and more. He then started Wellings Capital, wrote a book, called The Perfect Investment, and now co-hosts a podcast called How to Lose Money. Please help me welcome Paul Moore. Hey, great to be here, Ari. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm honored. Thank you for coming on to the show. We really appreciate it. Paul, I noticed you live in Virginia. My mom's whole side of the family lives in Virginia, and my brother and sister live down in Richmond. Uh What's your favorite outdoors place in Virginia? Actually, there are so many. There's so much to enjoy. I think the extension of the Blue Ridge Parkway called Skyline Drive would have to sure, be my by Shenandoah. place. Yeah, up in the Shenandoah there, up around Front Royal. So, Yeah, it's, it's really area. gorgeous there. Yeah. Yeah, we were just there this summer. It was totally beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. Awesome. Okay, cool. You called your podcast How to Lose Money. And while we were setting up this interview, you mentioned that I should ask why. Yeah. So you definitely have a story about this and I am incredibly curious. What is it? Ari, you know, one of my great goals in life is to be a great husband and father. And so I started taking my daughter to this father-daughter retreat in um, Georgia. We went seven years in a row. It was about a three-day retreat, lots of great speakers on being a great husband and father and all that. And every year I'd come away with this thought started as an unformed guilt and sadness. And then it turned into a conscious thought that I actually acted on. That was all the stories from the stage were positive. They were all, all of our successes, all the great things we've done. And my daughter admitted to me, she was young, you know, and she was kind enough to tell me, she said, I've got to be honest. I'm jealous of those families. I actually wish She said, I'm just being honest here. She goes, I love our family, but I kind of wish I was in that family because they get to do all those adventures. They made a movie (laughs) and they got to go on that Caribbean sailing excursion and the pirate thing and Europe. And they all seem really happy too. I bet they don't even argue or anything. 
And I got to know one of those families and their daughters told my daughter that they actually argued at home. And I couldn't believe it because I thought they were so perfect. And my daughter certainly did. And I noticed around the table at these different events, all the men, they have this discouragement like, well, (laughs) I got a full-time job. I don't know how I'll ever be as good a father as that. Where do I even start? Meaning the people who weren't one of those families that got up there and said, look how successful we are. Right. And so I started writing letters to these people. I started writing these comments like, hey, why don't you guys talk about your failures? It would actually really encourage everybody. Yeah. Yeah, It would make you human. It would make us all think we have hope. We can change. We can become (laughs) a great family too. Well, one year somebody got up and said, hey, we hear all about your successes and everything. What are your struggles? And there was five men on this panel and they looked like five deers in headlights. They didn't even know how to answer the question. They chuckled nervously. And I kid you not, one of them, who was the guy who had become my friend, he actually said, well, I struggle communicating my vision for life to the next generation of fathers. That was his struggle. Are you kidding? I feel like that was a canned response or not canned because he probably didn't prepare it before him, but it's one of those responses that is built to make him look good. You know, when the job interview comes up and, you know, what's your biggest struggle in life? Oh, well, I struggle to not get here as early as I would like. I only get here 30 minutes early. Exactly. (laughs) I I struggle because I work too hard. Um, It was very similar to that. So everybody in the room kind of like, so I decided. Uh, years later, when we started a podcast, I said, hey, everybody's got all these successes and I love hearing about them. But I would love to hear about people's struggles, failures, problems, setbacks, and now look at how successful they are. And we can all be encouraged that they're human. And we can also learn from their mistakes and learn, hey, there's something I don't want to repeat. And so right. we've had about 150 episodes and I've had about 150 different things I don't want to do now, let me tell you. Wow. And I'll tell you, it's interesting that you bring that up. The focal point of this podcast is, of course, success and greatness, but I'm not interested necessarily in the people who are quote unquote successful. I'm interested in the people who are number one, successful by their own definition. So that doesn't mean that somebody has a lot of money in the bank. But if they say, hey, this was my goal and I achieved it, that's successful to me. That's one thing. And the other thing is, is the people who are maybe perhaps in the midst of a failure, in the middle of all these problems. But hey, look, here's my vision. Here's where I'm going. That's what I'm trying to do. And I'm interested not just in the destination, but also the journey. Right. Yeah. For the next thing that I was going to ask about, you also told me that you had major, major swings in your financial fortunes. That's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) with specific numbers. I'm very curious what it was like, what you felt like while you were watching your empire crumble from having one and a half million in the bank to being two and a half million in debt, a $4 million swing. Yeah. I don't think I thought about it that way as it was happening. One thing I did wrong with that, I mean, talk about lessons learned here, Ari. I confused when I had that money and I was actually, you know, if people think that semi-retirement in your mid-30s sounds like a great idea, it was a terrible idea. I became (laughs) the worst version of myself, the worst father and husband. And I spent about two years, you know, I was a high energy entrepreneur at 36 years old. Why was I thinking, calling it semi-retired? It was a, a really bad idea. And it didn't work well for me. And I actually started a nonprofit, but I didn't get the people involved. You know, nonprofit has usually has non-participation from people who aren't getting paid. And it was just a really hard time. And so I started investing, but I wasn't really investing. I was speculating. 
because you know, Ari, investing is when your principal is generally secure and you have a chance to make a profit. Speculating is when your principal is not at all secure and you have a chance to make a profit. Just, and I was just throwing money around. Yeah, yeah. I was speculating and I lost a lot of money. Like the $100,000 I invested with the guy who had the 35% annual return on Forex trading. He's actually trading his time for the next 153 years in a federal penitentiary now. I was expecting that to go he, somewhere that way. He still won't tell the FBI where the $18 million he hid is that he collected from 2,000 investors. But they wow. weren't investors at all. They were speculators. And that's what I did. Now, I also made some really good investments during that time. And thankfully, all $2.5 million I was in debt in 2007 when things were falling apart nationally, right. real estate, all Everything of it was apart. tied to real estate. Now, I actually, one of my heroes in life is a guy named George Mueller. George Mueller was a hellion in Germany in the early 1800s, and he turned into a pastor, and he actually started orphanages. And okay. he basically was radically anti-debt. He had all these really strong convictions uh, against debt, against fundraising, against marketing. Yet, though he didn't do any fundraising at all, he raised about, in our dollars, I think $200 million during his lifetime. Wow. You're saying it. just by being him, people just would give by, donations. Yeah, by being him, by faith, by prayer, he basically was able to raise, again, I think, well, let's put it this way. It was enough money to house 10,000 orphans in total during wow. his lifetime. And okay. so, and he did it all without, obviously, without any government support or anything like that. So I thought to myself one day, what would George Mueller do if he was in my situation? Well, you know, I didn't let the shame overwhelm me, but the first thing I thought is he wouldn't be in debt at all. I didn't let that overwhelm <laughs> yeah. me too much because, you know, hey, I was a real estate investor, right? Anyway, seriously, I, I started thinking that he would have been very, very generous. He would have been giving radically at every chance he had. So I told my family, I said, hey, we're going to uh, give our way out of debt. <laughs> and my wife was like, um, come again. And uh, so she bought into this. My kids were too young to know any better at the time. We had four kids, still do. They thought, it, I think my oldest two thought it was a little odd. But I had a friend, two friends who met with me at a, a restaurant and said, hey, how are you going to avoid bankruptcy? You got to be honest, because one of them was the husband of my accountant. <laughs> and so, uh, they said, let's just be honest here with yourself. Let's, let's face some brutal facts. And I said, right. yep, the brutal facts look really bad. But I'm going to start giving my way out of debt, guys. I'm assuming to not really jump on board, right? Well, they just looked at each other and looked at their watch <laughs> and they, they nervously said, well, okay, if that's what you think. But, I feel like that's a common response to visionaries. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a crazy idea, but I didn't have any other options. I didn't, you know, of course, looking back now, it was much, much worse than we ever knew at the time. You know, usually you see the ending and it's really good, but it was actually really, really difficult. And we were plunging into, obviously, everybody knows, the worst recession in a modern history. Right. At any rate, I didn't know how bad it was going to be. I just knew it was already getting bad. And in January 2008, we started giving a set amount a week as if we were making half a million dollars. In other words, we were basically tithing off half a million dollars, if you will. Okay, what percentage did you tithe? It would have been around 10%. We were giving that set amount every week. We were not 
tying it at all to any success, any income, any good fortune we were having. And we were trying to sell off these bunch of waterfront lots at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. Well, one was a five-acre lot. I had about eight or 900000 in debt on. And I actually was in a Subway restaurant January 28th, I think it was, four weeks into this crazy giving experiment. And I ran into a developer and the developer made an offhanded comment that led to this light bulb revelation moment, which put me in front of the county planning and zoning representative two days later to propose this crazy idea to subdivide this five acre lot into five one acre lots so I could sell them. And trust me, if we had time, you would agree. It was a crazy idea. And she looked at me over her glasses. She shook her head. Then she had a little smile and she said, I've worked here for decades. No one has come up with such a crazy plan to (laughs) go around the law that stops you from subdividing. But I got to say, it's brilliant. And I will approve this plan. Wow. uh, So anyway, what happened is we spent the next 13 months, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears were shed and a lot of fights with my banker and a lot of other stuff that even involved an attorney, which I never have done before since. And uh, we ended up selling everything we had at the time, all the waterfront lots, and we ended up completely debt-free 13 months later. Wow. So I did a little math over here on the side, and I'm seeing that giving around 10% based on making what you said, a half a million dollars. Yeah. Oh, okay, fine. I punched in 5 million by accident. Okay, so you were given around a thousand bucks a week out. Yeah, that was our set amount we decided to give. That is amazing. And it's amazing that it worked out for you. It is amazing. It's just one of those stories that like, it's good to hear sometimes because it's good to know that people were doing the right thing and it really worked out for them. It, It happens often, but too often we don't hear of it, I think. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, there's some formula that that it always would work out. I think it just worked then. I believe in, I think uh, Eastern religions call it karma. I would call it the law of sowing and reaping. I believe it's a universal law that you, you know, you get back in proportion to what you've given. But I don't think it always works out just that perfectly because I've heard of other stories where it didn't work out as well. But at any rate, it did work I, out for us. I'm religious, so like I believe in, in these types of things. But yeah, yeah I, I agree. If the formula was give money and you ought to, and you definitely, and people see the immediate mm-hmm. outcome of getting money back from it, yeah. everybody would be giving money. So it can't, it can't work that simple. Yeah, well, it's, God it's, would be a, a vending machine then, and right, there's no way exactly. that that's true. It's great to hear that it really worked for you. That's awesome. Yeah. Can you remember when you were in the crux of it, $2.5 million in debt, can you remember how you felt? You know, this is a strange thing. I have said a number of times, I don't think I lost five minutes of sleep over it. And that's kind of hard to believe because I've lost sleep over much smaller things. But I <laughs> I, I actually, I don't think, and this is kind of crazy. I think since all of it was backed by real estate and since I didn't have any idea how bad real estate was going to get in 2008 right. and nine, I actually wasn't that worried about it. It's a little strange. You're saying you had about two and a half million dollars in real estate with two and a half million. Oh, I had at least three million in real estate against. Okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's if I subdivided the land. Now, if I couldn't subdivide that five acre lot, then I was toast. Okay. You know, the value of the five acre lot is, let's say, $400,000 by itself. The value of five one acre lots is, let's say, $1.3 million. And by the way, that's what I sold it for. 
about 1.3 million and four $300,000 chunks and then one smaller one. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Do you have a notable story about your time in financial struggle? It sounds like you almost were (laughs) were even concerned then, but do you have a notable story about one part of the struggle? I mean, we were talking before about bringing up the struggles and not just the successes. Yeah. Do you have a notable story about when you were in struggling financially? Um, I've never shared this story ever. And because it, but when you asked, it just hit me in the brain. We got a random, somebody at our church gave us a random 180, why? $180 gift card to the local Kroger grocery store. Okay. To Kroger. And it was so weird to get it. Was in like to your family or into the church? Okay. Somebody slipped it into my wife's purse or something. Okay. And so it was so weird to be the recipient. I mean, honestly, you know, we're pretty generous people and we do that kind of stuff all the time. We, right. I shouldn't say all the time, as in every day, but I mean, we try to be generous people. We slipped hundred dollar and even more dollars into people's purses. We've done, right. We've given, you know, I was at a table of several friends the other day that gave the waitress a $150 tip. Uh, I mean, it was, we love fun things like that, but I never knew what it like to receive it. And it was hard. Did you need it at the time? You know, we were pretty tight. I mean, we were making enormous interest payments. There's a lot more to the story that makes it actually worse. For example, my business partner who owned a significant portion of that debt quit January 1st, that same month that we had the light bulb moment, January 1st, 2008. What? He turned up and said, you just take over the debt. I'm done. Yep. Yeah, he did. And you took it over? Yeah, I took it all. We're still good friends to this day. But I'm saying when you ended up pulling out and making the money, he didn't get any of it, right? I actually warned him about that. I called him in (laughs) February and I I said, Ted, I think I've come up with a way to figure this out and pull this off. Are you sure you don't want to jump back in? He said, nope. Uh, If you make a profit on it, I'm happy for you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But that's oh. really amazing. So how did it feel to end up being the recipient when you needed it? I know you said it was like hard and, and it weird. was weird. Other- I mean, it wasn't horrible. Like I wasn't ashamed, but it was weird getting the $180 gift card and, you know, not knowing who it came from. We had some guesses, but it was kind of weird. And I found out it was, I don't want to say it's, you know, they say it's more joyful to give than receive. Uh, I think that's true. I, I, I was nice to get the gift, but I think it's more fun to give. And I sure like being in a position to give more than a place where I have to get. Absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Are you still debt-free? Um, no. We actually have a mortgage on our house. And actually, that the mortgage on our house even was paid off, by the way. When I said we were 13 months to debt-free, we had an right. equity line, and we paid it off. And That's so awesome. that was amazing. In March of 2009, I think we were completely debt-free. That's uh, really amazing, especially in the middle of that downturn. I know. It's incredible. But uh, no, we have a, a significant mortgage on our house right now. I've spent the last four years, actually approaching five years now, beating my head up against a wall trying to launch a multifamily syndication business, which means we're buying apartments and we're making the profits available to our investors. And I've been beating my head up against the wall, Ari, because the apartment market has just been on a continual incline. And of course, we can't tell until years later when the top of the market was. And so we keep thinking, well, maybe this is the top. Maybe we'll... You're hoping the market will start going down so you can purchase apartments that will go back up in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. We want it to be the right price. And actually it's overheated right now. So 
there are some really smart apartment investors out there who haven't even bought anything for years. And okay. uh, we like to model ourselves after them. So we weren't buying. I've actually accumulated uh, an increasing home mortgage balance over these four years, as well as okay. some, uh, there's no other significant debt though right now. Okay. Is that essentially what Wellings Capital is doing? It's trying to do the multifamily syndication? No, actually, we just switched gears. My company, Wellings Capital, is actually raising a fund now to partner with other expert operators in the areas of multifamily, but more than that, in self-storage and mobile home parks, where there are a lot more opportunities right now than in okay. multifamily. Okay, cool. You're branching out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you got to do that if you're waiting for 40 years and nothing's doing with the market you wanted to get into. Yeah. I mean, I had to figure out some way to either move on to something else, which I wasn't willing to do, or make what we had built work for us. So we decided Absolutely. to pivot and we have four or 500 investors waiting for us to roll out new investments. So this was awesome. an obvious way to do it. That's really good. How do you define success? Well, how do I define success? That's a good question. I don't know if I have a really succinct answer for it, but I think that everybody, you know, I, the book Good to Great talks about that. It's by Jim Collins. It came out in 01 or so. And he talks about the inner quality, that inner satisfaction and joy from knowing you did something really, really excellent. Uh, Whether it's being a great father and a husband, which again, I'm trying to be, or whether it's building a great company, or whether it's doing something that doesn't even make money. Like uh, one of his stories in there is about a track coach who actually had a full-time job and they went to the track, the high school track meets after work and they trained these kids and they became the state champions. And the joy that that coach that got, the inner satisfaction of just doing something really, really well. That's a volunteer. Right. right. Yeah. So success certainly does not have to be, we all know this, that it doesn't have to be monetary. It helps all of us, I think, to remember it. Yeah, <laughs> you know it really saying? does help. Because when you're stuck in the rat race, you're like, oh, that guy's got a ton of money. He must be successful. Meanwhile, he might be miserable. Yeah. And my big why uh, for my life, I mean, I have a s- several, but the one I talk about most has nothing to do with personal financial success. Right. You told me that you work very hard to fight human trafficking. You're generating well, funding and you rescue yeah. victims. So like, how does this work? And what's the backstory? Well, so I really feel like my calling is to influence culture and to make a lot of money. And my goal is to funnel through influence and through personal profit and other things and through relational relationships I have to funnel a billion dollars into fighting human trafficking and rescuing it. That's your goal is to be a direct effect of a billion dollars into fighting human trafficking? Yeah, and that would be in the next 45 years. I'm 55 years old right now. I have, I figure I have 45 good years left. Sure. Uh, so my plan is to continue to get the word out. Ari, did you know that if you took the record profits of Apple, Nike, GM, and Starbucks, not average, their record profits, added that together, double that number, that's the approximate annual revenues generated by human trafficking worldwide, they believe. It's stunning. It's hard in the trillions of dollars per year. Two hundred fifty billion dollars is the estimated profits. Yeah, Yeah, it's the profits of those companies, and you can't judge the profits of human trafficking because who knows what the actual profit is? And we can talk about that. But imagine the impact worldwide on that. But imagine the impact on one child or one girl when these sex 
slave owners, supposed owners, can actually make up to almost half a million dollars per child or per girl per year. It's horrifying. And Ari, I want to believe that if I was alive in the 1800s, I would be fighting as an abolitionist against slavery. Or if I was an adult in the 1960s, that I'd be fighting for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right that has been ripped away. And this is slavery. And it is wrong. And we have to fight it. And so my goal is to give a significant portion of our company's profits toward fighting human trafficking and rescuing its victims. My goal is to also get the word out on podcasts like yours and tell people that this is serious. It is serious. It's only it's growing, and uh, it's it, really growing it's here. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. How did this end up on your radar? How did you get involved? Well, I actually watched a, a movie, a film, a documentary called Exodus cry excuse me it's by an organization called exodus cry it's called nefarious okay and this documentary i highly recommend it everybody watch it it's called nefarious or pronounced nefarious however you want to say it i met with the uh, founder filmmaker of that film who actually spoke before the un about a year ago it opened my eyes to how serious this problem is that's how i got started i will also say that i've had three generations of women in my family impacted by sex crimes. It's, I've oh, seen the horror, the absolute damage that caused them for decades for what was honestly a much, how do I say, smaller event than anybody who's ever been trafficked. Right. And I think one benefit to trying to raise money to fight mm-hmm. human trafficking sure. is that each time that you have an impact, you can attribute an entire life. I mean, there's a there's an old saying in the Talmud, I believe, that says that, you know, he who saves one life is as if he's saved an entire world. Mm. And the right. reason for that, the reason for that saying is that any time that, let's say you pull a girl out of there and she's right. able to live a normal life or as normal as possible after right. that, her kid or kids, and then the kids that they have, then the kids that they have, and the, and the generations just multiply the effect of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Any level of success at what you're doing right, can have a tremendous impact on just one life and then just a second life, a third life, a fourth life, et cetera. Yes. And, and it, it can just completely and totally snowball out of there. And, and yeah. it's, it's really amazing. I, right. It's really true. It's really true. And, and I've thought about that too. You know, I think Mother Teresa had some comments about the same thing. I was going to launch into that, but it would be a side discussion. So we we can go on from there. But yeah, thank you for letting me talk about my big why. Uh, I have other things I'm really passionate about as well. But that's the one thing that I think everybody universally, religious, non-religious, Democrat, Republican, I think we can all unite around hating human trafficking. Yes, I think so. Do you have any crazy stories about human trafficking that you're willing to share? I don't think I have anything that, I mean, I've got some personal things that have affected me, but the, the stories out there on the, on the film Nefarious, there, there's one story after another. And I'll tell you that people might think, well, you know, prostitution is totally different from human trafficking. Well, I would beg to differ and say that almost all, in fact, one of the girls interviewed on the film Nefarious says every single prostitute she's ever met was a victim first. Not always trafficked, not always kidnapped against their will but they were a victim in some form as a child. And so that's one thing I want to say. The other thing I would say is this. Exodus Cry is involved in rescuing girls, getting the public awareness of this crime out there. Third, 
rehabilitating girls. And I will tell you that, oh, excuse me. And third, I meant actually impacting government decisions. They actually were able to impact a law that was about to be passed in Canada to change the direction of that law. And it was regarding this issue of prostitution. I'll tell you, there's one country, and I think it's Sweden or Switzerland, which I wouldn't have expected, that made hiring a prostitute a felony. In the U.S., it's a misdemeanor. But okay. it's a felony in this one... For, for listeners who aren't aware, the felony is a much, much, much graver crime that, that has a much farther impact on somebody's life overall right. as opposed to a misdemeanor, which is almost... It's not quite just a slap in the wrist. There could still be jail time, et cetera, but it wouldn't be as big of a deal. Like uh, people can lose licenses for having a felony, but wouldn't necessarily lose a license for having a a professional license. I mean, I know somebody actually who's a pharmacist who got caught soliciting a prostitute. I think he got an $88 fine or something. And he kept a pharmacy license and he went right on. But if he would have been a felony, it would have been totally different. Right. He would have been toast. Yeah, this one country that made it into a felony to hire a prostitute, human trafficking and prostitution is almost zero in that country now. Now, You're saying they got rid of the customers and therefore the people who are trying to appeal to the customers start to disappear. Yes. And so Exodus Cry, ExodusCry.com, by the way, they're fighting to get better legislation like that in place. That's so interesting. I never contemplated that. From economics and stuff, the whole laissez-faire type concept of, you know, just leave it, just leave it alone. And, you know, just because you don't necessarily do stuff like that. But I, I don't think I ever contemplated the fact that the prostitution market would be so incredibly tied into the human trafficking market. I'm saying you just gave me reason because if I had seen a law coming up like that in Ohio, let's say, oh, we're going to make, you know, soliciting a prostitute a felony. I would have been like, who cares? You know, big deal. So that's what they want to do. Why, why make it a felony charge? That's a very interesting. You just completely shifted my viewpoint on a law like that if it were to show up. So that's, thank you. Yeah. You know, as we record this, Ari, we're in the holiday season. And, and did you know that a lot, from what I understand, when you go to, to a mall, you know, all those kiosks in the mall around the time of the holidays, was, uh, yep. a lot of those people are supposedly trafficking victims that are working in there. And, and you might notice a lot of them are from Eastern European countries. So the people uh, who work at the kiosks, that's what I've heard that they are trafficking or that they they're are traffic victims or they're victims that, that were kidnapped and sold essentially. That's what I've heard. I don't have any proof of that. Okay. So I will tell you my own experience with kiosk mall stuff is that a large majority of them are Israelis who come in, work for a little while and then, and then go back home. Yeah. I, as far as I know, they don't have any issues like that. And I, no. the way that I know that is because I can walk up, if I hear the right accent, yeah. I'll throw out a little Hebrew at them and they'll spit back rapid fire and I'll be like, no, 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 not too, too much. <laughs> yeah. I've actually spoken to several from Israel that were there, sure. but I've also spoken to some who were from Eastern European countries and I have no idea if they were trafficked. They certainly weren't going to tell me and I wouldn't ask. Right. I mean, if I had a significant conversation with one of them, I might ask, I guess, now that I know this. Yeah. I would be interested if that's what they're using these victims for is to just work in the mall. Well, there's all kinds of victims. I mean, there's, I know. I just saw a film that talked about uh, the Indian uh, slave labor. It's unbelievable and horrible. It's an issue. And it's amazing that you're taking great strides in, in fixing it up. Just a few more questions. We're going to be wrapping up shortly. Today's quote I have, I found one by Dave Ramsey, a financial guru who, just like you were bringing up before, George Mueller is a big proponent of getting and staying out of debt. Right. Now he has a quote. He says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Yeah. 
Have you had the same experience? I have. I took a about three years ago when I decided we were I was going to need to raise a lot of capital for our multifamily syndication firm. A friend of mine convinced me that I said, you know, I got a really nice car, don't I? It's a Ford Flex. And it was the nicest car I'd ever <laughs> had. And I literally, you know, I considered it a luxury car. And he's just like, you've got to be kidding. That's not a luxury car. And he convinced me to buy a late model Mercedes. And um, I actually went, I think it was $25,000 into debt to buy a $27,000 Mercedes that had been 60,000 just two and a half years earlier. Talk about depreciation. Oh my gosh. They, they depreciate like crazy. Yeah. And it was one of the most fun driving. Exp- I never even driven one before. And it was so one of the most <laughs> fun driving experiences imaginable. And I had it for about a year and a half. And I can tell you that I did not in that year and a half, I added about 150 investors to my list. And Ari, not one of them, not one did I meet in person. And not one, obviously, was impressed by my Mercedes. But I was paying $600 a month, plus more than that for maintenance and tires and all that. $600 a month in interest payments on this. And so when I sold that and only had to pay $2,000 to the dealer to get him to take it off my hands, you know, with the debt that I had, <laughs> uh, I bought a, I flipped to the extreme other, uh, the other extreme and I bought a 2003 Toyota. You know what? I'm much happier in the Toyota. That's awesome. Yeah. Cars is a big thing. And that's a struggle that, that we're going through right now. Uh, I sold an old van I traded it in for a car, you know, nothing, nothing crazy brand new or anything like a 2011 Azera, which is Hyundai's version of the Avalon basically. And, you know, a few months later when we got, when our lease ended on our other van and we needed a van again and I was like, why did I, why did I do that? (laughs) I had a van, it worked. I just needed to throw new tires on it. I mean, look, it had a lot of miles on it. It may have died. I just, you know, I take it was the best thing to do because that's what I did. And it's too late to go back to that. I don't like, I don't like spending a lot of time looking back and regretting like, oh man, why didn't I do that? But yes, had I held on to the van, like everything may have been a little bit different. It took me months to realize it, but I didn't need the car that I bought. Yeah, I thought I did, but I I didn't. I, you know, yeah. a similar thing that was to what you you know, I was like, oh, for uh, if, you know, I need people to look at me and say, hey, look at this guy. But I just, I don't yeah. really care. I'd ra- I'd rather not have a car payment. That's that's what it comes down to. Right I now. absolutely agree. I don't have any car payments now, so it's great. You know, and and look at Warren Buffett. I mean, we all know. You know, most people know that he lives in a, a small house and he drives a Cadillac, not a really, really, not a Bentley right. or anything. Right. But, you know, there's a lot of other uh, CEOs who uh, a lot of them, again, are in the book, Good to Great, who lived in little houses with carports, didn't even have a garage and yep. uh, drove old cars and things like that. So I feel like I'm in better company and I'm a lot more comfortable with myself now, too, because I, I never really felt like I belonged. It just didn't fit me personally to drive that car. You know, it's flashy funny, Mercedes. Though, my daughter... Yeah actually, who was 15, 16 at the time I had it, she actually learned to drive in that car. So she got a little spoiled. And she said later, the other cars don't feel right. Yeah. They just don't drive right like a car should. And so that, oh, I said, oh, no, I'm training a monster here. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I hope she learns that most cars don't drive like Mercedes, but there's yeah. most cars don't depreciate like a Mercedes either. So That's right. She's learning about that. She's actually taking a Dave Ramsey class, believe it or not. Oh, nice. Right Good now. deal. Yeah. Good deal. The last thing is I, I like to leave my listeners with at least one takeaway, something that they can implement immediately. Mm-hmm. If someone wanted to get started on the road today to financial freedom, what's one first step that they can take today 
that would make the biggest difference. If somebody wanted to get on the road to financial freedom, the first step I think they could take would be to start giving generously now as if you are making a lot of money in the future. Because we have this mistaken belief that we, if we hit the lottery or when our business is successful or when we pay off our house, then we will start being generous. And I would suggest that who you are today is who you really are. And whether you only have $10 and you can give a dollar to a homeless person or whether you have a million dollars and you can give $100,000 to, you know, some worthy project, who you are today is who you'll be then. You know, there's a famous person that ran for, I think he ran for president or at least vice president not that long ago. And he is a trumpeter of, you know, the poor and caring for the poor and all these things. I'm not going to say his name because I, I haven't seen his tax returns with my own eyes, but I heard that since 1970, his tax returns show all the way through like 2012 when I heard this, that he had given a total of $100 to charity. What? How could you even do that? How do you give $100? Talk but, over and over and over again about how you should give, you should give, you should yeah, give, right. and give right, 100 right. bucks to charity. Yeah. So who, you know, who he was, was who he was. And he was a very wealthy guy, by the way. Anyway, start giving now. That's my one piece of advice. And of course, Dave Ramsey has a ton of other good advice as far as, you know, lining your debts up from smallest to largest and paying off absolutely smaller ones to make, you know, a dent, even if they're, they're not the highest interest, you feel that great success in that. He calls it the snowball effect, I believe. Yes, right? that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for joining us. You bet. It was a real honor, Ari. Okay. Thank you. Okay. You take care and we'll talk to you again. On September 26, 2019, Sharon Folk wrote a review on our podcast. She gave us five stars. She said, great discussion. Loved listening to your interview with Joe about how he came up with the Motivation concept. Sharon is a marketing project manager. You can check her out on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for tuning into today's show. We really appreciate it. This is your host, Ari Gunsberg, reminding you to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or on whatever your favorite podcast app is. And also, please make sure to go in and give us a rating, give us a review. Anything that you can do to help us grow this podcast is incredibly appreciated. And remember, keep on going on your way to greatness. Thank you for listening to the Way to Greatness podcast, where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness. Keep moving on your way to greatness. Join us next week for more stories, inspirations, and interviews to help you achieve the greatness within you.